Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning. Uh, I believe that counsel was present when I discussed Justice Urban's need to be masked at this point. Uh, but uh, that taken care of, the next case is Buckley versus Sirius Series 1 of Oxford Insurance Company. And we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, good morning. My name is Mark Kinghorn, and it's my privilege to represent the Buckley Law Firm, which is both the plaintiff and the appellant in this action. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. We're here today, Your Honors, on an important question of attorney-client privilege with potentially wide-reaching implications for North Carolina's businesses and law firms. It's a question that this court has not had an opportunity to address directly. The question is this, when a company engages counsel to conduct an investigation that is required by the company's policies, does the existence of that policy mean that the investigation is for business purposes and that communications related to that investigation are therefore not privileged? We think the answer to that question is no, it should be no, but the trial court in this case said yes. We think that decision is inconsistent with North Carolina's privilege law. It'll harm Buckley in this action, and that's why we're asking you to reverse. Now, I want to be clear about one thing from the beginning. Buckley is not asking you to change North Carolina's privilege law. We all agree that North Carolina follows the primary purpose rule for communications. And, and, and this was something I was going to ask you fairly early on, Mr. Kinghorn, so I appreciate you bringing it up up, up, up top. My understanding generally of our cases is that, one, we follow the primary purpose rule and we look at each communication individually. Are you asking, is there anything about either of those two statements that you would disagree with? No, that's not where we think the error happened. Okay, well, I want to start off hopefully with some area of agreement before we get into where there's not an agreement, just so I'll make sure. So your, your position is then that a trial court faced with an issue like the one that you had in this case should one look at the primary, should look at each communication individually and determine with respect to that communication whether the primary purpose was, you know, and I'm going to get the words wrong, but legal advice, counsel, or whatever. Is that, you, you agree that's what's supposed to happen? Yes, that's correct. It would be communications that are privileged. Now, the, as, as I read the record, the trial court conducted an in-camera examination of all of the documents that are at issue here, put them into three categories. One, he found to be privileged. The second, he found to be completely not privileged. And the third, some privileged, some not privileged. So that an, in, an individual evaluation of each communication was conducted. That's correct. And we have not been asked to, we, the, the communications at issue have not been filed with us, so uh, I don't have access to them right now. That's correct. We okay. are not asking you to conduct a review of right. those communications. Well, I've done it before. I could <laughs> do it if I had to. Um, so if that's the basic rubric that we're supposed to follow, and I think Mr. Cooney and Mr. Barnhill agree with that. If they're wrong, they can tell me. If I'm wrong, they can tell me when their turn comes. Go where you were getting ready to go when I interrupted you. What is the specific, if, if what the trial court did is what I think you and I have agreed was done, what was error about it? 
Sure. Your Honor, it deals with the way that privilege is evaluated in the context of an, of an investigation like this. Because what the trial court did here is the trial court first looked at the factual record to determine what was the nature of this investigation. For is, what is, that, is that a factual question or a legal question? Well, it, it, it resulted in findings of fact, which we are not challenging the findings of fact. We're challenging the court's application of law to the but facts. But ultimately, is it your contention that what the purpose of the investigation was is a legal issue or a factual one? Uh, if if the purpose of the investigation was de determined as a result of an inappropriate application of the law, then that's a legal no, no, issue. No, that's I'm, what we I'm, I'm not asking it to that degree of sophistication, I don't sure. think. My question is, to the extent that it is relevant, what the purpose of the investigation was, was it a legal act or a business act or some of both, is that a factual question or a legal question? Uh, in this context, we think that's a legal question. Why? Because it drives the further analysis to the question of whether communications related to that investigation are privileged. And maybe I can illustrate this by just talking I was, about I was what getting ready to ask you to do that. So Absolutely, certainly. So in this case, and we laid out the facts in the briefs, I'm not going to go through them in, in great detail, but this was an investigation that was initiated when Buckley learned that its chairman at the time, its name partner, had been accused of allegations of uh, harassment. So Buckley engages Latham and Watkins in order to conduct this investigation. There's an engagement letter that specifies what the purpose of this investigation is. There were declarations that were submitted by both Buckley and Latham lawyers in order to, uh, to support the, the, the mutual belief of the parties that Latham was being engaged in order to provide Buckley with legal counsel. The court found all of those facts. All of those facts are contained within the order that we're appealing from here today. The court also found one additional fact, which is that Buckley has a policy that requires that allegations of, uh, of harassment be investigated. And the court concluded as a result of that fact, which was a correct finding of fact, that this investigation was initiated and pursued for business reasons and not in order to provide Buckley with legal advice. We think that was a question of law that the court got wrong because the court was applying, we believe, an in, inappropriate understanding of how the primary purpose let, let, And let's assume for purposes of discussion that the, the trial court did get that wrong, that this was primarily a legal investigation rather than a factual investigation. Put aside the discussion you and I just had and move on to that. Certainly. In looking at each specific communication individually under the primary purpose test, why does that make a difference in, de in determining whether any individual communication was or was not covered by the privilege? Certainly. I think it makes an enormous difference, and you see that difference in paragraph 40. You obviously do. I just want to make sure I understand why. Absolutely. So yeah, after the court concludes that the nature of this investigation, because it was required by a policy, was for business purposes and not in order to provide Buckley with legal advice, the court then concludes in paragraph 48 that based on its in-camera review of the documents in question, that many of them were made to or by Latham solely or primarily in furtherance of its investigation into Sandler's alleged misconduct in accordance with the policies and are unrelated to the rendition of legal services. So the way we believe that the court analyzed this, just based on the language of the order, because the investigation was pursuant to Buckley's policies, it was therefore for business purposes and not for the receipt of legal advice. And the court then concluded that communications between Buckley and Latham related to the investigation were for business purposes under the primary well, purpose and, and test. Let, let me, I'm going to ask you one more question and then stop interrupting you, let, your, let my colleagues uh, discuss any concerns they may have with you. But hypothetically, since we don't have these things in front of us, Let's say that an attorney from Latham interviews a particular witness and gets a statement from that witness, doesn't make any commentary about the legal effect of that statement, whether the statement is believed to be true or false. In your view, under your, your view of the proper test, is that a protected communication? 
If so, why? If not, why? Facts are not privileged. We all recognize that facts are not privileged, including facts that are learned through an investigation. And facts have not been withheld by Buckley in this case. What Buckley withheld well, you know, were again, I don't, you know, that, that's, that's your contention. I don't think Mr. Cooney and Mr. Barnhill have seen them. I know we haven't. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's I guess, why you conduct an in-camera uh, examination. I, I, absolutely. And I, I think you, you'll see in the, in the order that Judge Bledsoe did not take the position that Buckley was withholding facts, you know, notes of interviews or anything like that. What the court, what we take issue with in the court's order is that the court ordered that certain communications related to the investigation between Buckley and Latham, in which Latham was providing things such as advice, mental impressions, suggestions about how... How, how, how do we know that? Well, but, but, well, all we are asking you to do, Your Honor, you, you asked what the harm was to Buckley. Right. I'm I trying mean, the, to articulate what the harm is. The question is, you know, once is. you go with that argument, then I think you're asking us to assume what the contents of the communications are, and we've not been provided that, so we don't know. Absolutely, and we're not asking you to review the communications because we think that the legal error is clear from the face of the order. So we're asking for a reversal based on the error in the court's application of the law so that the court can then apply the correct legal standard to the documents. We but think to, that's to the get, most efficient. To get a reversal, and I promise you I'll stop asking questions, but to get a reversal, don't you have to show both legal error and prejudice? I think, I think we've shown both, Your Honor. But I, I you think, would agree that you have to make such a showing? Yes. And here I believe that we've clearly shown the, the legal error that the, the court's application of the primary purpose test here was not actually a balancing test. It's not actually what the primary purpose test requires. The only fact that the court finds in the entire order that could support the conclusion that this investigation was for business purposes and not for the rendition of legal advice and legal counsel is the existence of the policy. That's it. That's the only fact. So there's a number of facts that the court identified and recognized are on the side of Buckley engaged Latham in order to provide legal counsel and legal advice. And then the court said, but there's a policy. As such, this investigation was for business purposes and not for the rendition of legal advice. We believe that is legal error. Isn't that policy, though, an integral part of what the business court found in terms of operating from the premise that discovery is typically liberally allowed and typically as well if something such as the existence of such a policy is in the course of business then typically it would be allowable through discovery uh, I, I think it, it would not be correct your honor respectfully to say that typically the existence of a policy would mean that documents related to that policy are discoverable. We cited a number of cases in our brief, in fact, in which courts found that investigations were conducted pursuant to a policy, and yet communications related to that investigation were not privileged. What we believe the court did not do that it should have done, and that courts across the country generally do, is apply the balancing test. The existence of a policy can be a factor that the court takes into consideration in determining whether the primary purpose of the investigation was for business or legal purposes. But it can't be dispositive, and that's what we have here. So, for example, and did you have a... Well, I was just going to ask, uh, when you say that uh, the policy was for legal purposes, uh, wasn't this a manual of some kind uh, that was employed by the business of the law firm uh, such that when there was anything done of that nature that's alleged that there would be an investigation and if that is the case are you saying that the whole premise of this policy is for legal purposes and not merely for some personnel guideline? No, I think it can be both and that's what that's what then Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, uh, addressed at length in the Enri Kellogg opinion when he was on the uh, D.C. Circuit. That opinion is an excellent guide to how these dual-purpose issues come up in the privileged context, and it happens all the time when companies conduct internal investigations. There, there can be two purposes for the engagement of a law firm, for an investigation, for communications related to the investigation. It may be that when there is a policy, there is some reason to think that there is a business purpose for the business, in this case the law firm, to conduct an investigation pursuant to that policy. But 
at the same time, that uh, law firm in this case can engage counsel to conduct an investigation in order to provide it with legal advice. And the question then becomes under the primary purpose rule, which is the primary purpose? And Judge, but, Judge but, Kavanaugh. But it has to be on a communication by communication basis, not on the basis of some more global look, right? It, yes, and that's, what we, that's exactly what we think did not happen here. If you look at paragraph 48 of the complaint, of, of, the, of the order, then you see that after the trial court concluded that the investigation was for business purposes and not for legal purposes, the court also concluded that communications related to the investigation were for business purposes and not for legal purposes. Then you go, you know, and again, because none of us have seen the things, we can't Certainly. really evaluate it, but there's page after page after page of document X, then the court says either this is or isn't a legal communication uh, because its primary purpose is not legal advice. And that's really all we've got in terms of how the court applied the test, isn't it? Uh, no. no? You, you, okay. also, you also have paragraph 48 of the order and then uh, uh, other paragraphs as well. So again, I know I keep just returning to paragraph 48 of the order, but this is where we think the, the court's error becomes truly uh, manifest. So, okay, so, so let's look at the precise language of paragraph 48. Sure. Um, it starts out saying many uh, solely primary in furtherance, and I'm reading the, from the first sentence of its investigation, uh, unrelated to the rendition of legal services. And then if you look two sentences later, it says many reflect the primary purpose of giving or receiving legal advice. Correct. So the court said, we're not going to make a bright line rule that just because there's this investigation, it is or is not related primarily to the rendering of legal advice. How is that not the proper application of the primary purpose doctrine? Your Honor, I actually think that that does reveal a bright line rule that the, that the court applied the with respect to here. So by dividing these documents into categories and saying documents that relate to the investigation are not privileged because the investigation was conducted for business purposes. So show me precisely where it says that. So it says, so, um, you, 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 the, 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 court, the court has analyzed the background here. It's laid out the standard that it's going to follow in paragraphs 45 and 46. It said, we conclude that because of the existence of the policy that you have, uh, that the investigation was conducted for business purposes. Then the court in paragraph 48 begins to address its in-camera review of the documents. And it says that many were made to or by Latham solely or primarily in furtherance of its investigation. Okay, it says many. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. So there's no bright line in terms of uh, if it is uh, uh, related uh, to the investigation, then it can't be uh, the giving or receiving of legal advice, because actually two sentences later it says many of these same communi or these uh, communications that arose out of the investigation have the primary purpose of giving or receiving legal advice. How is that a bright line? Because that's a different bucket. And, it, and one, of the buckets, one of the buckets that the court decided was privileged, you see that down in paragraph 50. It's communications between Buckley and Latham involving a, um, a public relations firm that, that Buckley had engaged at the same time. Those communications didn't relate to the investigation. That's the court saying, look, if Buckley is communicating with Latham, about issues unrelated to the investigation, such as the public relations uh, response to what's happening with the chairman of the firm, that's not privileged. But communications... Are, are, you, are you then contending that any communication made to or from Lathan that related in some way to the investigation is invariably covered by the privilege? No. The communication still has to be addressed on a, on, on a communication by communication basis, but we don't believe well, that I happened. Mean, my, hypothet my, my hypothetical witness statement would technically be a communication, assuming that Latham then sent it to somebody within the client, uh, would be a communication to the client within the scope of the investigation, wouldn't it? So that's a great hypothetical example. Let's say that Latham uh, sent an email to Buckley saying, here's notes from a witness interview that we conducted, 
And then the email also contained information from Latham about here's our mental impressions, here's what we think we should do next, here's our advice. In that case, I think the case law is clear that the notes of that interview would not be privileged. Any of include including the factual summary. Cor correct. But the email that contains Latham's advice, mental impressions, recommendations to Buckley, that would be privileged. That would clearly, clearly be privileged. And, 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 and that's what the and court So isn't here, that in the category that the trial court we talked about a minute ago put in the middle? Some was privileged, some was not. No, Your, Your Honor, respectfully, okay. I think that chapter four, or paragraph uh, 48 is where the court starts to articulate its division of communications into different buckets. Right. And the first bucket that the court identifies here are communications uh, made to or by Latham solely or primarily in furtherance of its investigation. So in the hypothetical that I was just laying out, the email that contains Latham's mental impressions would be contained in that bucket. That's clearly a privileged email. It does relate to the investigation, why, but it contains Latham's mental impressions, advice, recommendations. Why, why, do, why do you assume that they would be treated as purely an investigation, given that many of the, the, the statement in paragraph 48 that the Chief Justice pointed your attention to that says many, many of the Buckley communications reflect the primary purpose of giving or receiving legal advice? Right. Because there are other buckets. There are buckets such as those political relations communications that we were talking about that, in this case, the court did analyze that. He said, this didn't have anything to do with the investigation, so that's not privileged. That's, or that is privileged. Well, that, is, that, is it your contention that anything that, regardless of what it actually is, in terms of the substance of the communication, anything having to do with the investigation is privileged? No, I, to, to, go back, to go back to the hypothetical, you have to analyze each communication on a, on a communication by communication basis. And again, that's what we think didn't happen here. Here, the, the court said at the beginning of 48, any communications that were made by, to or by Latham solely or primarily in furtherance of the investigation are not privileged. You said any, but it, the court says many, not any. The court says many are, many are not. How does it make the distinction? Well, it depends on the primary purpose. Your Honor, respectfully, it says many were made to or by Latham solely. So that's identifying the scope of the bucket. It's saying that of this universe of communications, many of them, bucket one, were made to or by Latham in furtherance of the investigation. And then it says that uh, that bucket, that, that group of the, of the universe, uh, is unrelated to the rendition of legal services and in the next sentence that these Buckley communications are not privileged and should be produced. But, so, but then you read it in context where it goes on to say they the court should, could have said however, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, but then it's, and, and I don't think you disagree with the second statement, which is if the primary purpose were solely uh, uh, for the investigation, you've already said that if it's solely related to the investigation, it's not privileged. Of course, just making that statement. But then in the next one, it's saying in our other bucket, we have those that the primary purpose is for giving legal advice. So two buckets, primary purpose, investigation. Second bucket, primary purpose, legal advice. How, I'm hearing you say that that's the right test, and I'm having a hard time figuring out how the court didn't apply that. Sure, and the, the error, Your Honor, is, is equating the primary purpose of an investigation that's conducted pursuant to a policy with business purpose and not legal purpose. We think that's exactly what happened here. If you look at paragraph 45 and 46, you see that that's the analysis that the court went through. The court identified that there was a policy. Then in the beginning of 46, the court says, as such, the evidence shows that the investigation was initiated and pursued in the ordinary course of Buckley's business, and um, and and it's and 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 then in 48, the court concludes that communications related to that investigation, which were pursued, which according to the court was pursued in the ordinary course of Buckley's business for a business purpose and not a legal purpose, uh, were were not privileged, and that's the error. We just think that the court should not have <coughs> come to the conclusion that. 
the bucket of communications that were related to the investigation are therefore for a business purpose and not privileged. Instead, the court should have applied a communication by communication analysis to those documents instead of creating a presumption effectively that any communications related to the investigation are not privileged because we believe there are communications in a case like this with the nature of the investigation that we're dealing with here that relate to the investigation but were very much made by and between Buckley and Latham for the purpose of giving and receiving legal advice. Well, let me ask you about that because in paragraph 48, the court specifically excludes those in his definition of ones that are not privileged, where it says many of the communications were made solely or primarily in furtherance of its investigation and were unrelated to the rendition of legal services. Why doesn't that take care of your concern? Uh, because I, I, don't, I don't believe, respectfully, Your Honor, I don't think that's, that, that's not the way that I, I read that sentence. I believe that the court's statement there was saying that this, there's this group of communications that were made solely or primarily in furtherance of the investigation and therefore were related to were, were for the uh, were unrelated to the rendition of legal services. That's consistent with the remainder of the court's analysis as laid out in paragraphs 44, 45, and here in 48 of the order. We think that's the only way to to to, to draw a consistent line through all of this. Well, but in the same paragraph, the court goes on to say that there there's there's those that are related only to the investigation and are unrelated to the provision of legal services. Then there are the ones that are related to providing legal services apart from the investigative efforts. Co correct. So, so communications unrelated to the investigation, again, for example, the public relations communications with the public relations firm, the court said those can be privileged because they're not related to the investigation, but communications related to the investigation were for business purposes and therefore are not privileged. We believe that's the analysis that runs through these paragraphs in the court's order and that's what we believe is error because it's not an actual application of the balancing test for the communications that's required by the primary purpose test. I'm still not clear about how it doesn't do that where it then says toward the end of that paragraph that many of the Buckley communications reflect a primary purpose of giving or receiving legal advice. These Buckley communications are privileged and have been properly withheld. Right. You're not disagreeing with that part of it, are you? I, I'm not. That, that's a different bucket, other, a, a bucket of communications unrelated to the investigation that we believe the court analyzed correctly. What we're challenging in this appeal is the court's analysis of the communications that are related to the investigation, which the court held are not privileged because they are connected to an investigation that was conducted pursuant to a policy for business purposes. So if we don't have the actual communications, we only have the log that the trial court did the analysis from correct, correct? and we how are we supposed to do that how are we supposed to split those hairs apart I, I believe it's clear from the face of the order your honor i certainly understand that other people may, may not see it that way but i believe that the court's analysis is clear from the face of the or, order and the court's error in creating this bucket of communications related to the investigation that are not privileged that um, that that's a that's a question uh, that's an error of law that this court has the opportunity to address. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. As you're taking your seat, I would point out that our uh, uh, rostrum does have a, uh, a way to make it go up and down. So for those, that it's on the right hand side, and that's right where your right hand is, Mr. Coney. And you can pull it one way or the other, and it'll make it. Welcome to the modern world. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. I appreciate it. Yeah. Mr. Kinghorn, I just didn't want to interrupt you. That's why I didn't point that out. If it pleases the court, I'm Jim Cooney of the Mecklenburg County Bar. And along with Mike Barnhill, I represent the defendant, Appley, uh, Series 1 of Oxford Insurance. Uh, this case really turns, Justice Irvin, as you pointed out, on the fourth factor of N. Ray Miller. Uh, for more than 20 years, it's been a requirement to, to find a, that a communication is privileged. It has to either seek or give legal advice. Even in the context of a privileged relationship, if a communication doesn't seek or give legal advice, it's not privileged. And I'm at the same disadvantage that the court is 
when I look at the judge's order and the communications, because I haven't seen them either. I have to take the court at its word for what it did. And I think you can look at paragraph 50 of the order and see exactly how carefully Judge Bledsoe applied this. So paragraph 50 is at appendix uh, page 20 of our brief. And it involves the public relations communications that Mr. Kinghorn pointed out. It said, first, Buckley has withheld a number of communications involving Buckley, Latham, and SKD Knickerbocker, a public relations firm retained by Buckley to advise in connection with Sandler's departure. And then this is important. The court concludes that these Buckley communications are properly withheld as privileged to the extent they were made to facilitate or assist in the rendering of legal advice to Buckley. That is the touchstone that the court used throughout its order. If a communication is for the purpose of rendering legal advice, if the communication seeks legal advice, even if it involves a public relations firm, it nonetheless remains privileged. And that puts this order, Judge Bledsoe's analysis, and frankly, the law of this state squarely in the mainstream of privilege in this country. It's important to remember contextually what's going on here. They withheld every one of these communications on the theory of privilege. Their theory was you retain an outside law firm to do an investigation, everything the law firm touches is privileged. And they withheld everything. I don't, they don't, regardless of what, what may have been said at an earlier stage in this proceeding, that's not what I heard your colleagues say today. They have been narrowing their position. Well, that, ha that happens. Yes. Uh, but I think it's important to understand exactly the way they view the privilege. For instance, they haven't conceded. And, and remember, he knows what these documents say. I don't. But he hadn't conceded a single one of the documents that Judge Bledsoe said didn't provide legal advice or didn't seek legal advice. He hadn't conceded a single one of those is not privileged. He wants Judge Bledsoe to go back and review them all because they contend they are all still privileged. The same with the scheduling and the, and the uh, administrative stuff that Judge Bledsoe found. They want to send those back to Judge Bledsoe to re-review. Now, if he's narrowing his legal position now, and I, I applaud him for doing so because I think they're getting the law right, they know what these communications say. They know whether sending around a scheduling appointment for a telephone call at a certain point in time either did or did not contain legal advice. Judge Bledsoe said it didn't. If it didn't contain legal advice, what we should have seen is a withdrawal of the appeal as to certain of those documents. But they're asking you to send all of these documents back to the court for review because they claim they're still privileged. And that's the fundamental error they make in this case. While I realize they now say they do not ask for a presumption that, outside counsel, that what outside counsel does is automatically privileged, when you look at page 40 of their brief, they say it. They say courts across the country have presumed that what outside counsel does is privileged. That's not correct, we believe, as a matter of the case law. And that's the only way they can get to where they are. Because the, what's going on here is there are a series of cases across the country that essentially say when I'm retained for the purpose of providing legal advice to a company, general counsel reaches out, wants me to provide legal advice to a company about a situation that's arisen in the company, and I do an investigation for the purpose of providing that legal advice, then a lot of that investigation, other than facts, can potentially become privileged. And they were trying to ratchet this investigation into that. But what happened here, and there are an equally large number of cases on the other side, that say when you conduct an investigation primarily for business purposes, and outside counsel often act as business advisors. I do that a lot, too. I'm asked to assist a corporation in going through uh, incidents and trying to figure out the best way to handle something. But I may also render some legal advice 
in connection with doing that business stuff. And what Judge Bledsoe says is the business stuff obviously isn't privileged because it's business. It's in the ordinary course of business. You're required to do it. But any legal advice in connection with that business investigation, they're seeking my legal advice, I'm giving them my legal advice, that remains privileged. And you see that throughout Judge Bledsoe's order. And I he, think he does have the statement that your colleague referred to a number of times in the order that says, in effect, that this investigation was primarily conducted for business purposes or something like that. And what, in your view, is the significance of that statement? He, he, he seems to think that it taints the whole order, if I'm understanding his argument correctly, and he's got a little bit of time to disabuse me of any error I may have in that respect. But uh, assuming that I'm understanding him correctly, uh, was that determination an error? How do you determine whether that determination was an error? Is it a question of fact or a question of law? To what type of review should be applied in looking at it? Well, it, it, there's no question it's an intensely factual determination. Now, perhaps we can argue about whether the ultimate legal conclusion <coughs> is, uh, is subject to de novo review as, as a legal matter on business. And the, ulti the ultimate conclude with the ultimate conclusion being what? Uh, with the ultimate conclusion being whether or not this law firm was retained to provide legal advice. And in order to provide legal advice, it had to do a factual investigation, in which case it was primarily a legal uh, retention. If, on the other hand, it was retained to do an investigation required by the company's policies, then in the course of doing that, to the extent it provided legal advice or it sought legal advice, that would still be privileged. But, but to, to the extent that we, we've got two possibilities as to the broad overarching purpose of it, to the extent that a trial court in an instance in which we have an allegedly primarily business activity still determines that a particular communication involved the giving or receiving of legal advice, that communication would still be privileged. That's correct, and that's where I wanted to go. And, with and that. the flip side, I gather from, and I don't, again, don't think Mr. Kinghorn disagrees with this, but he can tell me if I'm wrong. Even if you have a primarily legal inquiry, a purely factual uh, document within developed within that inquiry still wouldn't be privileged. I don't hear either one of you disagreeing with either of those two propositions. Am I mishearing the argument? No, I think you're hearing the argument as it exists today, the well, correct that's, way. That's the only version of the argument I have, <laughs> I, I have before me, Mr. Cooney, so I think I've got to go with that one. Well, I, as I say, uh, if that is indeed where Buckley has landed, then I'm at a loss as to understand why they want every one of these documents sent back to Judge Bledsoe, including the ones that do not primarily seek legal advice or in which legal advice is not given. Now, to, to go back to the question about business versus legal, that's a preliminary inquiry, but, but your honor is exactly right. You still got the fourth factor of Miller. And the fourth factor of Miller says, was the communication given for the purpose of receiving legal advice or the giving of legal advice? That has to occur under either scenario. And if it doesn't occur under either scenario, it's not privileged. And I, I think what they're, they're attempting to do is they're attempting to take one sentence and create this uh, notion that somehow Judge Bledsoe said, well, you know, if you went out and interviewed one of the accusers, uh, and, and to use your hypothetical, you have a factual interview and then a series of mental impressions or legal advice. The attorney says, I think this is a credible witness. If this witness is credible, there's a Title VII violation here. We have to worry about DC law. Judge Bledsoe clearly indicated he would be redacting that because you've got one communication that's just simply a recitation of facts. And then you're looking at those sentences where the attorney's giving mental impression and offering legal advice. You're going to redact that because the purposes of those portions of the communication are for the purpose of giving legal advice. 
And you see that in Judge Bledsoe's order. He has several places where he says, I'm going to redact this email, but I'm not going to redact the rest of it because this email seeks legal advice or this email gives legal advice. What, what he was looking at, I think, uh, and, and I can't be 100% sure, is he was looking at 157 separate email strings. So there'll be a number of communications in connection with each email string. And he was examining each of the communications on the email string to determine, does it seek legal advice? Does it give legal advice? And so as he's going through that, that's the touchstone, and that touchstone stays the same, whether it's for a business purpose or whether it's to provide legal advice and you're doing an investigation uh, to assist you in the provision of legal advice. Now, I, I do have to disagree with Mr. Kinghorn where he said there was only one fact that, uh, that led Judge Bledsoe to conclude this was primarily business. The, the fact he pointed to, of course, there's no dispute, the firm's policies required this investigation. It's a pretty important fact, and it's a business-related fact. But that wasn't the only one. Uh, the second fact was the engagement letter. You know, you would think in an engagement letter between one of the leading firms in the country, Gibson Dunn, with another law firm to conduct an investigation for that law firm, you're going to use some precision when you describe what the subject matter of the engagement is. And the subject matter of the engagement, as described in the engagement letter, was the internal review of a personnel matter. Now, there's no question they also would give legal advice in connection with the internal review of a personnel matter. But it's the internal review of a personnel matter, and let me give you a quick um, reference on that. That's at sealed record page 950. Uh, literally the second sentence, third sentence, but the first one under legal services. You have asked us to represent you in connection with an internal review of a personnel matter. It doesn't say you've asked us to represent you in connection so that we can give you advice or the, so we can provide legal advice to you. We can provide legal services to you. It's the internal review of a personnel matter. To what extent, if any, do we accord deference to the trial court in its in-camera review relative to its determination on these various documents? I, under the normal circumstances, uh, I, I, would, I think there's an argument you can make that it's an abuse of discretion, and that's if, you, if you're given the documents. But here, you're not even given the documents. I mean, I, I think the trial court's review has to be conclusive because you haven't been given the documents. Uh, we have, there's no way you can go back and say, well, the trial court was wrong on document 83 because you haven't seen it. You have to accept that. And when they did not give you the documents, they have to accept that too. I'm sorry. Let, you know, let me uh, just ask a couple of questions. Uh, first off, paragraph 46 of the findings of fact, uh, talk about that, and, and let's put it in the context of a business, when a business has a policy that uh, requires uh, further investigation of sexual harassment or uh, any other personnel matter. Uh, the court seems to be saying, well, that's the ordinary course of any business. Uh, it's, it's paragraph 46 of the findings of fact is what I'm looking at. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, is, is that a wrong statement? No. That, so, so then uh, I'm moving over to uh, the uh, amicus brief of the chamber and the other folks there, uh, and it tends to uh, make the statement uh, on page five, the trial court held that certain of Buckley communications with outside counsel were not privileged because the investigation Buckley uh, retain Latham to perform was one required under Buckley's firm policies and consistent with Buckley's business practice. Is that a true statement? I think that incorrectly reads what the court did. 
because I think, as Your Honor pointed out in paragraph 48, the court very much said, even if you're doing an HR investigation, but you provide legal advice in connection with it, or the firm is seeking your legal advice in connection with that HR investigation, that remains privileged. And you can see that throughout Judge Bledsoe's order. And let, let me kind of clear up something, because, you, of course, Judge Bledsoe is, is uh, ruling in the context of the arguments that were presented to him at that time. And you need to understand what Buckley was arguing before Judge Bledsoe to put a context on this order. So, uh, and this is at pages 1589 and 1590 of the sealed record. And this is Mr. Kinghorn. We are taking the- Counsel, I don't want you to reveal any confidential information. This there. is from Mr. Kinghorn's argument before the court. Okay. And that was conducted in open court. Uh, we are taking the position first that you apply a different standard when you're parsing out the privilege with an in-house lawyer versus an outside lawyer. Uh, they are no longer taking that position. We're just saying that due to the nature of the investigation, due to the nature of those engagement, those communications in this case are going to be privileged. I mean, they were throwing an entire blanket over it saying, this was for the provision of legal services, everything's privileged, your inquiry stops. We make it easy for you, judge. And the judge was obviously having to address that issue. And, and again, there, there's case law that, that, that talk about that. But what, what the court found is effectively this began with a business imperative. An outside law firm was hired primarily because it involved the name Buckley Partner. And that's what they say. And that uh, it still didn't lose its business imperative, but legal advice would still be protected. But there's an additional fact also that the uh, court pointed to, and that's a joint statement or joint affidavit that was executed by the executive committee. And one of the things the executive committee said is they wanted Gibson Dunn to do this investigation because they wanted all the parties to see the investigation as fair. Well, first of all, Mr. Sandler would be one of the parties. Mr. Sandler's not in a privileged position vis-a-vis -vis Gibson Dunn and Buckley. So they certainly thought that whatever Gibson Dunn was going to do would be sent to Mr. Sandler. And then they talked about we wanted external audiences who would see it to also see the investigation as fair. So once again, how can, an, how can you have a privileged relationship that you want external audiences to see? The simple fact of the matter is that they retained Gibson Dunn because of the sensitivity of the matter and they wanted somebody outside the firm to do an objective investigation. Now, all of this becomes important because if you go with their theory that somehow all of this is still privileged, you can see how the privilege is used to obstruct relevant fact-finding. Because in this case, we've got two big issues on this $18 million claim that Buckley has filed. The first is, did, the, did Buckley have reason to believe before it purchased the policy at the end of December 2017 that Mr. Sandler might leave the firm? because they had reason to believe that it was likely that something might happen to cause them to leave the firm, that's excluded from the policy. They had an outside investigation going on by Gibson Dunn, one of the biggest law firms in the country, by a former White House counsel into Mr. Sandler, and they didn't bother to tell the insurance company about it. And then the second exclusion is if the law firm takes actions that lead to Mr. Sandler leaving, that's excluded from coverage. We believe these communications, it's our theory that these communications are relevant because they're going to show the law firm working hand in glove with Buckley to accomplish just that purpose, to force Mr. Sandler out of the firm. And we didn't make this up. We didn't stumble across this in discovery. You read their amended complaint. It goes on for four pages almost about the Latham and Watkins investigation into Mr. Sandler. They're the ones who put it out there. Having put it out there, they now want to argue, you can't have anything about it. 
because it's all privileged, because it was for legal services. And that's precisely why they withheld every one of these documents. And notwithstanding Mr. Kinghorn's argument today, they still want all these documents to go back for a privilege review. So when you get down to cases on this, and I certainly agree with the point they make in their brief that each case is very fact-specific. But the facts we have in this case are pretty overwhelming. We have the judge making specific findings of fact about the business imperatives here. We have the judge nonetheless going through each communication and making findings as to whether it sought legal advice, whether it provided legal advice, whether it was simply a scheduling document, whether in the, uh, in the case of the PR firm it was used to provide legal advice or to support the giving of legal advice. And then he makes conclusions. And Buckley doesn't give you the documents in which those findings can be challenged. So on this record, what Judge Bledsoe did is precisely what you instructed him to do in In Ray Miller back in 2003. You have to determine whether a communication is made for the purpose of receiving legal advice or for the giving of legal advice. And if it is not, it's not privileged. It doesn't make any difference why it was done. I'd be happy to answer any further questions by the court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll try to make the most of my three remaining minutes. If the court had actually said that legal advice within communications that, between Buckley and Latham that were solely or primarily in furtherance of the investigation could be privileged, we wouldn't be here today. But that is exactly the opposite of what the court said in paragraph 48 of the order. That's the error that we're asking you to fix. Instead, the court said, I've conducted an in-camera review of the documents. Many of the documents that Buckley withheld were made by or to Latham solely or primarily in furtherance of the investigation. Those documents are unrelated to the rendition of legal services, and the court concludes that those documents are not privileged and should be produced. And then the court said, there's another bucket of documents from the evidence presented that Buckley retained Latham to provide legal services apart from the investigative efforts and that many of those communications reflect a primary purpose of giving or receiving legal advice and could be privileged. So our problem here that we're asking you to address is that by creating a first bucket of documents that are documents related to the investigation that were made by and between Buckley and Latham in furtherance of the investigation, and those documents are therefore not privileged, that was error that needs to be addressed. And it's an it's important error because it goes to the public policy of the state. We've addressed that in our briefs. Um, I'm concerned that if this order is not uh, addressed, if this, um, if this misstatement of the law of North Carolina is not addressed, it creates a disincentivizing effect, impact on businesses and law firms in terms of the enactment of these types of policies. Buckley, for example, although not a North Carolina law firm, uh, but extrapolated to any North Carolina law firm or business, could look at this order and could say, look, if we didn't have a policy, the court wouldn't have had any basis to conclude that the investigation was for business purposes and would not have had any basis to conclude that communications related to the investigation were for business purposes and therefore not privileged. So we want to maintain our privilege. We're not going to enact a policy. That's the exact type of disincentivizing impact that we, we believe could come from, from this type of a decision. I also just want to address one technical thing. We're not, the, the, the relief that we're asking for here is very specific. We're asking this court to correct what we perceive as an error of law that's embedded within this order that, that, that uh, taints, to use Judge Irvin's uh, term, the court's analysis of the documents related to the investigation. We're not necessarily asking Judge Bledsoe to review all of the documents all over again. Our assignment of error here is related to the, the documents that relate to the investigation, that bucket of documents that Judge Bledsoe determined are not privileged because they're related to the investigation. Um, I don't, we're not assigned 
assigning error to his analysis of documents that he concluded were not related to the investigation and therefore could potentially contain legal advice. It's his presumptive conclusion that documents related to the investigation do not contain legal advice, were for business purposes, and therefore are not privileged that needs to be addressed. Thank, Thank you. you, counsel. Thank you to everyone. Mr.